Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm the founder, Jennifer Palmer. Today I am pleased to welcome Terry M. Brown as our guest host. This is Terry's debut interview as a guest host with Online for Authors. Terry is an author herself and is considering if a podcast of her own is a fit for her. Until then, we're happy to have her with us. Terry's guest has a story that instills hope in many facing daunting challenges. Her book, Revised, a memoir, chronicles a remarkable journey of embracing life and triumphing over adversities, serving as a beacon of light for those in need. Her extraordinary journey of overcoming daunting odds, offering inspiration and hope to parents and educators navigating desperate situations. The experience, she says, led to her appreciating literacy learning as being more than a set of skills to acquire, embracing foundational knowledge of how children and adults learn and adopting a growth mindset. She unlocked true potential, shattering self-limiting beliefs. I'd like to welcome Lois Letchford today to Online for Authors. She is the author of Reversed, a memoir, and we're really excited to have you here today, Lois. Thank you, Terry. I'm delighted to be here. So my first question for you is, what is Reversed about? It's a personal story. In 1994, my son failed first grade. And when children fail so dramatically, the chances of getting out of that failure basket are very few and far between. We had an extraordinary journey to have my son go from the bottom to the top of the academic world. So in 2000, yeah, 2018, he achieved a PhD and I became, earlier than that, I became a reading specialist. That's the book in a nutshell. In this journey, when did you decide to write this book? Like, like when did that idea first come and then when did you actually do it? In 1995, we had time in the UK and mm-hmm. that time in the UK transformed Nicholas's learning and my teaching. In 1999, we moved to a place called Lubbock, Texas crazy place and in there Nicholas went from the bottom to the top and then in 2007 Nicholas entered college in 2012 he graduated with two honours degrees 2013 he's on a PhD program that's Nicholas's story right then and and what I'm seeing as a mother and a teacher is this boy getting better and better and better and a child who you know, no expectations. And in 2011, my husband took a job in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. I follow him. And what do I do? I can't teach. And because my son's journey was so dramatic, I thought this has got to be a book. I did my master's in upstate New York and then thought, now what do I do? I want to tell Nicholas a story. In 15, I start writing this thing. And I am dyslexic. The first draft was only fit for the fire. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible draft. But I got the story on paper. Well, you cannot edit a blank page. Totally agree. Totally agree. And in this process, I started to do more writing and I went to a writing class. Mm-hmm. And in that writing class, the vast majority of people were like me, you know, beginner writers, unable to edit anything. 
And I met a young girl my son's age who said, Lois, you've got a fantastic story. If you want me to help you write this book, help you edit the book, let me know. She was phenomenal. And she turned my story around from just blank words on paper to bring them to life. Fantastic. It was amazing. From the point that you started writing until you got it published was how long? Three years. Three years. Okay. And how much of that was spent in the editing process? A lot. Well, <laughs> I spent a year working with her okay. writing it. Okay. And then, and so I'm paying her. Let's right. get the, the money into this. I'm paying her on an hourly basis and her rates just went up and up, up and up as expected. Right. 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 And then I had to look for a publisher. <laughs> I'm unknown and my right. story is an educational, inspirational story. What do I do? And I contacted Acorn Press. They got back to me within 24 hours. But not only that, the owner of Acorn edited my good writing in the first page of my good writing. And I, her edits just blew me away. <gasps> I thought, she's right. Oh, she's right. So what I did then was I sent those first five pages out to, to other editors to say, what would you do with this? Right. None of them came back as good as the Acorn editor. So then I went with them. I had to publish my book through them. Right, right. Even before I published it, I paid another editor to finish it off. So my first editor, Zanz Strumfeld, took me from the coal face or the diamond mine, really. Right, right. The second editor cut it and the third editor polished. Oh, how wonderful. That's a great story. And I don't think your story is that significantly different than most authors. We always find ourselves with this, this great idea and that first thing that you get down on paper is kind of rough and ugly and you don't want to show it to anyone. And you're almost embarrassed to show it to an editor because it's like, <laughs> and then and then the editor comes back with these ideas that help you. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what we need to do. And, and then it's the polishing process until you finally have that book out there. So that's fantastic. I know you wanted your son's story out there, but there had to have been more than that to keep going with that kind of editing process and that kind of financial, you know, input. So what were you hoping? The first is to show that the way we think about children who fail is disastrous or can be disastrous, and yet when we change our mindset, we change the outcome. First was a mindset process. The second was that teaching has to be more engaging and is far more complex than just teaching children to decode. And finally, I just want people to know what we can do with children. Right. What can we do? Right. By the way, I loved your story. I homeschooled my four children. And I have a an extremely gifted older son who would have been lost in a public school simply because they wouldn't have known what to do with him. And my other, my three girls are all gifted, but all had learning disabilities it would have been very difficult in the public school. And because it was a one-on-one -on -one situation, I was able to help them. And all three of them have gone on to college 
and, and my son as well. So it made me feel really good to know that I could do that. But reading your story, there were so many times that it was like, oh, I feel this right down to my core. So you did an excellent job helping readers really feel the pain that you felt as a mother and the pain your son felt as a discouraged learner, all of those things. So when you were doing this writing, what was the hardest part about writing this down for you? The hardest part was when I'm teaching him to decode and I know, you know, it's boring, it's methodical, it's, right. you know, and it's just dull. And you and I knew I couldn't write that. So I thought, how do I get this across without losing the reader? Right. And I thought, you know, it, it, it was like being in, the, in a lifeboat in, a, in the ocean. <laughs> and and that's what I wrote and that became you know a really uh really compassionate part a really deep down hurtful part because you have to put the hurt and the excitement together right exactly so, yeah so that was one of the hardest the other part was the transition from failure to success particularly when we're in Lubbock and he's done well in high school and he's going to college. And when the first time I wrote the book, I didn't know how to transition. And you have to do a lot of writing to get that transition right. And yeah. then I knew I had to have a problem. You've always got to not create a problem, but you've got to show or overcoming a problem. Otherwise, you lose the readers. And exactly. everything is about maintaining the reader. Have I maintained my reader or have I lost them? And then in that second part, I thought swimming. He he had this phenomenal experience of swimming, and you and it, and it was true, right, right. And so I wrote about that, and that gave us an in to the final chapters or chapter. Yeah, yeah, I loved that story about him having to learn to swim. And he isn't going to do well in this large class of just go do this. And that that coach went and, and singled him out and gave him the things that he needed, right, to be yes. able to be successful. Yes. And so he came out of it successful. And yes. for a child who's not being successful in a lot of arenas, to have success like that is instrumental. I mean, any way that you can allow them to have a success yes. is is yes. so instrumental. Yes. I'm curious because I know that when I was reading it, I felt your pain. I felt his pain. Was it painful writing about? Was it hard for you to go back and Very. write about those things? Very. Yeah. Almost impossible. And when I was doing an interview very early on, one of the interviewers, he said, can you tell me about first grade and that? And I just said, no, I can't do it. it. It's too hard. How I wish I'd made different decisions. Right. Because what wasn't said is what's come after the book and the implications for failure. We think of failure as happening in one year of the child's life. It is one year, but it lives forever. Right. The memory lives forever. And we've ignored that. I ignored it as a mother, as a teacher. If you know the pain, it's still there. It's still there. 
Right. And, and, you know, that's, I think, uh, just a true statement in general. We all look at, at these difficult times in our life, whatever they are, and say, if only I had known this, done this, seen this, been this, you know, whatever that is. And you have to remember just for yourself that you have to give yourself some grace because you did absolutely the very best you could do given the knowledge you had at the time. You didn't know what you know now, so you couldn't do differently. Look at what you did after that. You didn't just keep sending him back into the same horrible situation over and over and over without making any changes and sitting at home saying, oh, well, this is the way it's going to be. I'll make a comment on that. And this is what people forget or cannot read into my story. Not one move our family made was for Nicholas. Nicholas's story happened by a series of accidents. And that's the hurtful part. And that's why I wrote the story. Right. I know it's hurtful, but in other ways, I looked at it in terms of, you know, you were moving to England, right, to UK, and you knew that he wasn't going to do well there. And so you homeschooled. Like you, you made that schooling choice and you, while making that schooling choice, you learned things. And then you took those things that you learned and you started forcing his teachers to understand this is my son and this is what needs to be done. So yes, there were happy accidents. I mean, I love it when, when, you know, the universe just aligns itself beautifully and allows you to have those, but I love how you capitalized on them. You know, you didn't just say, oh, this was a nice year and then go back and and start living the old life. You said, oh, wait a minute. I've seen my son. He's not just doomed to be some kid who doesn't learn because I watched him learn. I watched him ask questions. I watched him get excited about maps he shouldn't be able to, to understand. You know, I loved that. So, yeah, give yourself a little grace, really. <laughs> Thank you, because the, the, what happened in Oxford was so transformative. Right. You can't go back once you've had that experience. You right. can't go back. You right. can't. And I love the fact that you embraced that and said, okay, all of you teachers out there who say my son can't, let me show you what, what can't looks like, you know? And, and so I loved that because you kind of became the tiger mom. You know, like I'm going to get in there and you're not, you're not, my son is, is more than what you say. And here's my proof. And I loved that. Like I was cheering for you on the sidelines. So that was excellent. That was absolutely excellent. What was amazing was it's a true story. Right. The diagnostician called him the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. I didn't make that up. No, I know. And and the sad thing about that is, is that a child knows that even if he never heard the words, he knows when people are treating him as the worst child that ever, you know, that I've had in 20 years, they feel it and they know it. And that is no way to help a child who's struggling learn is for them to feel so bad about themselves that now any chance of learning has been removed. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) At what point in this process did you recognize your own learning disabilities? Did you know about it before? 
that really happened as I was working with Nicholas. I'm in, in the bookshop in Oxford. There's Blackwell's Children Bookshop at the time. And I found this really slim volume of symptoms of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. 20 symptoms. I'm reading them and looking at them. I have 17 out of 20. Wow. I have a really good guide for growing up. My younger sister, she's two years younger than me. She did things before me. And so I had a yardstick to say you couldn't or you're right. behind. Right. And I struggled through school and everyone would just say, well, you know, she's be she's below average, she's not working hard enough, she doesn't try enough. And no one knew how I was running so hard right. to get to just passing. It's incredibly difficult to feel like that throughout your whole life. Oh, I can imagine. So how did it feel when you essentially diagnosed yourself, when you realized I have 17 of the 20? Oh, it was a relief. Yeah. It's an understanding of why I struggled so much. Uh, and then the writing process was just incredibly difficult for me because I would be classic word blind. I cannot see, I cannot read back anything I've written. So technology for me is phenomenal. It reads what I've written. I can hear it. Ah, that's wrong. I right. cannot see it. I right. cannot see it. Well, you know what's interesting is, is you cannot see it. You have dyslexia. And so there, there are those issues. But even for authors like me, I often do not see the things that I've written incorrectly, because I know what I meant. Yes. And I read what I yeah. meant to put on the paper. Now, yes. I probably catch more than you because I don't have dyslexia. But I think that is a common problem, just generally, that people when they write their own work, trying to edit your own work is yeah. difficult because I'll I'll read the same paragraph 16 times and someone will say, okay, Terry, this word's misspelled. You've got these two words out of order and this isn't even the word you mean. And it's like, what? And I yes. go and look and lo yes. and behold, as soon as they point it out, I can see it. That's right. But yeah. So, yeah. I, so that's kind of what the dyslexia does, but multiplies that. Yes, exactly. Wow. That's, yeah. that's difficult. And then you wrote a book. Yeah. I mean, this is when you give yourself a big pat on the back. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's it's, fantastic. it's been a huge challenge for me to write the book, and I'd love to write more, but the writing process to cost so much. Right. With editing and people don't see the value in my story, they write it off and say, well, it's just a story. And that's re I find that really hurtful when we're in an education world that is so, well, I can't even comment. <laughs> You know. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I do. Curious, are your issues and your son's issues similar? Or did he have some different things going on as well? Nicholas is dyslexic. Plus, plus, plus. Uh -huh. Official label, speech language impaired. And it's only recently we found out that he has a genetic problem with hearing. Oh. And, you know, here, here I go back into his history. When he was a tiny baby, I knew I could leave him on the change table to change his diaper and he wouldn't move. 
doesn't matter how high it is, he would not move. And that's a vestibular problem. He had ear infections from eight to 18 months. That changes the brain. Right. You don't hear the language. Therefore, the brain does not connect the dots in the way it should do. So that was significant. So he has far worse issues than I have. He also has a better brain in pattern recognition. He's got his father's brain in pattern recognition and spatial awareness. And now the extreme Nicholas faces is second percentile. That's two out of 100 for language component Mm -hmm. of learning and speaking. So he's very slow with the thought to get the thought into the, the words into the right order and then out the mouth spatial awareness, pattern recognition, places him on the 99th percentile of the population. Wow. So such a, such a dichotomy of, of yes. like what he does know and what he, he has to work so hard at. And in interviews and job situation, because he's now in his mid-30s, what do people see? Exactly. Exactly. Language. And so you, you have to learn to almost advocate for yourself from the beginning to let people know you know, this is where I am. And this is, this is what needs to happen. My youngest daughter, she has Asperger's. She's learned to advocate for herself where she will walk in and she'll tell like a new boss. I just want you to understand. I do want to do what you've asked me to do, but sometimes I misunderstand directions. So if you see me doing something else, let me know and I will try again. And people love that about her now because she's willing to just admit this is a problem that I have, but I am really, really willing to work and and to do what you want. You'll just have to maybe help me a little, redirect a little, try a different way of of telling me, maybe show me instead of say it out loud and then I'll, I'll be able to do what you want. So. And I think with that comes again, this mindset idea again, instead of seeing that person as stupid, Sorry, right. that's that's the exact. Are you, I know, I know. They don't I say know. it. I know. But boy, you feel it. I think our stories are here to educate the entire society. Exactly. When you see a person doing something different, our first diagnosis should not be stupidity. We should recognise we have a neurodiverse population, and where do we want these people to be? in our population? Do we want them to be unemployed or do we want to take the time to educate yourself and them to say, this is the way we do things in our, in this culture? Yeah. And this is, this is how, this is how you can get beyond the little hiccup that you have going on. You know, it's, I've told my daughter a million times, there's nothing wrong with you. You just think differently than a majority of the population. So you're going to have to kind of learn the way other people think and adjust yourself enough that when you are doing life, you can be in that population with everyone else. But it doesn't mean that you have to give up the way you think, you know, because she she thinks outside the box. I love it. She comes up with some of the most amazing I know, solutions to problems that other people don't think of because they've already decided that's not possible. Mm. And my daughter is more like, why? Mm. Why is it not possible? Mm. Why wouldn't you just do this? Mm. And it's like, oh my gosh, I would have never thought of that because in my mind, that was clearly not going to work. And in her mind, it's like, well, why wouldn't it? If you just do this, this, and this, 
it'll work. Yeah, yeah. So I your, love that about her. Your comment at the beginning, what's wrong with her? There's nothing wrong with you. No. When we see a child that's not acting within our normal range, the first thing that goes through our brains is? What's wrong with them? Yeah. Yeah, and instead of, like, what might I be doing that's causing this or what might what might I do that would help this child be more successful? Um, in fact, with my daughter, she would take things so literally. So if you told her to do something, she followed you literally. Well, we're not used to that because we do a lot of assumptions when we speak. And I would see her doing something that I didn't ask her to do. And I would stop and think, what did I say? And I would replay in my mind what I said to her. And I'd think, oh, she's doing exactly what I told her to do. And then I would have to think, well, what do I want her to do? And how can I say that so that she will then do what I want her to do? And so really, whose problem was it? Was it her problem or my problem? You know, I'm the one that's communicating with her in a way that doesn't make sense to her. That's my problem. And so, you know, we learned in our family to do certain things. That concrete, abstract thinking is, exactly. a, you know, it's a real characteristic of, of language difficulties, which we have ignored. Exactly. So this episode is sponsored by Visibility Podcasts. Connect with Visibility Pod about visibility strategy coaching, podcast tours, podcast production, platform building, content creation, and distribution. Your online presence matters. Mention this author interview to receive a discount. Get the help you need today. Email visibilitypodcasts at gmail.com. That's V-I-S-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at gmail.com. Let's say that there's a parent listening right now who has a child who's struggling somewhere, not necessarily with dyslexia, but just struggling in the school system or just struggling in life in general. What advice do you give them? Where do they start? What should they be doing? You really need the advice of an expert. You need to seek out expertise beyond the child cannot decode. I don't know, you know, if you're talking about behavior or whether you're talking about learning, you know, so my expertise is in working with learning challenges right. that kids right. have. Seek out an expert. And I don't know where you find them other than me because <laughs> I don't trust people. Right. So everybody reach out to Lois. That's what she's yeah, saying yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I can work with you as a parent. You can work with your child. I mean, the ideal is that we engage the teachers in this discussion, but it depends on their mindset. Are they willing to say, yes, I can teach this child in my classroom? Or is it, it's too hard. It's too hard. They're the worst yeah. child I've ever had in 20 years. Right. Yeah. Essentially, if a, if a parent hears this is the worst kid we've had in 20 years, and so the experts that they're dealing with are in the school system, and they're not getting anything more than your child is bad or your child is lazy or your child is stupid, then your recommendation is to move beyond that, you have right? To. Like, you have, like you look have beyond to. that, yeah, right? You have to. I mean, we can't guarantee long-term outcomes. No. But we can teach your child to read. We can have that step that allows them to function in our society that someone had taken away from them. And when you're non-reading in our society, you're really on the outer. Yeah, you are. 
You are. How do you do most anything in our society if you can't read? And yes. now even with with the way technology is and everything else, you most people are now even communicating through things like texts and other things. And if you can't read, then you don't get to be part of all of that. Yes. Exactly. And although we have speech to text and and and, and listening right. devices and all of it, it's not sufficient. You right. need to be able to read independently. I agree. I agree. Tell me, what is your son doing now? I know that he graduated with his PhD, but that's been several years ago. He moved from the UK back to Australia uh, last year. Uh -huh. So he's in a job working for the government doing mathematical modelling at the moment. He's married to a phenomenal lady who is so supportive of him and he's searching for a place where he feels really content because he's not particularly happy in his job at the moment. Okay. But, it, you know, it's a... It's always stepping stones. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's just the way it is. The likelihood that you land the, the dream job to begin with is pretty slim. <laughs> Yeah. And it's all learning. It's right. You know? Exactly. What about you? What's what are you doing and what's next for you? <laughs> I had a little hiccup. I had a skiing accident in January 20th last year. I shattered oh. my collarbone. Oh, no. I shattered my collarbone. Oh my goodness. So I go to a surgeon, he says, Yes, it needs to be repaired. He gets I get it repaired and I end up with a brachial plexus lesion. I don't even know what that means. It's the the nerves between the brain and the arm because you've got muscles. Muscles right. don't work on their own. You have nerves and the nerves have been damaged. So for the last 18 months, I have been in significant pain. My arm doesn't work properly. I've been down to New York City to get a second opinion on this. So that has really put a big dent Oh, my goodness. But that said, I'm tutoring privately. Okay. I tutor privately. I have a new grandbaby, so I babysit. I tried to do some talking, but people just said to me, yours is only a story. So I do what I can. I love my story. I'm passionate about teaching. And I've met a lady who teaches at Russell Sage College who would like to write a second book with me. And that would be ideal. She has four Fantastic. sons. Her last twins are dyslexic. I don't want to do this business on my own anymore. It's too hard. The promotion, book promotion, is too hard for me. But I, I know what I have to do to teach children to read. Right. And that's what you want to focus on. That's what I focus on. Right. So I tutor right. and I'm, I work on this book to write with her, with someone who has a PhD, who understands the literature. i tell you what I did. I reached out to a professor, Professor Tim Rosinski, who is an emeritus professor in the field of reading. Mm -hmm. He and I published a paper in The Reading Teacher. Well, fantastic. I've got the knowledge and my knowledge is way beyond normal for teaching kids to read. You said that you have people that tell you your story is just a story. You're reaching out to the wrong people. We need to find you a speaking circuit because I think you have the ability. I mean, I saw it in the book that you can touch people. And that's the point is to, to I would think that you could touch both, both an audience of parents who have, you know, learners that are struggling learners in one way or the other. But I think you could really also touch educators and help them understand that there is 
there is more to educating than following a simple one, two, three, you know, and if the kid doesn't learn it, then it's the kid's problem, you know, instead to look and say, well, what else can I do? And not only that, but I would think that learning to read would be better even for the kids who get it with the boring one, two, three, wouldn't it be better if, if it were like enjoyable instead of just this drudgery that they had to do, right? I totally agree with you. When I've talked at reading conferences, I've been in a room and teachers at ESL have been sitting there and they say, we can use this with our students. Exactly. It's exactly. not just for only for the two or three or five or 10 kids that are struggling. Every child benefits from the way I teach. I and so think, do the teachers. Yes. Every so I homeschooled my children. And so I taught my four to read. And I had my son who who just like, he just learned to read. I don't even know how he did it. Like one day he was reading. And then my three daughters all struggled very hard with learning to read. And so, and, and when you were talking about that one book that you went and burned or you, you tore up, what did you do? You tore it up or did you burn it? We tore it up and sent it to the worms. Yes. Okay. So the reason that I came up with burned is because we burned a book that way. I mean, it was, it was that same kind of thing where we were learning all of the sounds and you had to repeat them. And there were the flashcards. And my daughter was like, like losing her mind over yes. it because I'm yes. teaching her things. You know, she's the kid that, that liked the rules, yeah. right? And reading, though it has some rules, it breaks them more often than it follows them. And so I'm teaching her, well, this sound says, and then we would try to read and the sound didn't say that. And she would just, she would lose her mind on me and start to just sob and scream and cry and just like fall apart. And it was like, this is not working. This is not working because she knew those sounds but they weren't playing by the rules and she hated it. It frustrated her so much. Reading programs like that really hurt me because yeah. they are promoting this is the only way to do it. And those people who come up with those things really have very little clue about our learners. And learning and how learning works. Right. They might work with a handful of children, but I don't. But wouldn't it be great if you did that and you did other things as well so that all children in your classroom would find those pieces of information that made sense to them? Because I think that learning the sounds were not unhelpful to my daughter later, but they certainly did not teach her to read. Yes. That all they did was frustrate her. She was probably 11 when she learned to read. And the reason, and, and she, was, she was actually still going along the way she needed to in school because I read everything out loud to her. That's just the way we handled it. I said, okay, if you can't read it, then I'll read it to you. And she understood what she heard, but she couldn't, couldn't read it. But she loved audiobooks. Yes. And so she listened to uh, Bridge to Terabithia. Yep. Probably, oh, 200 times. I know yes. she listened to it times. Yes. We'd get it from the library and she yes. would listen to it over and over and over and over and over until we had to take it back. And yes. then she wasn't allowed to get it out again because the library had a rule. Yes. So then the next time we would go to the library, she'd get it out and she'd yes. listen to it over and over and over. And yes. I happened to find that book at a thrift yes. store for yes. a quarter. 
And I handed it to her and I said, I thought Mm -hmm. you might like this. And because she already knew the book by heart, when she opened it up, she could decode it because it was now, and by the end of that book, she was a reader. But it was, yeah, yeah, and it was crazy. I, I wondered when she would read. Like I, I was yeah. kind of at my wits' end. I didn't know what else to do for her. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, when I was reading your stuff about the, oh yeah, I just felt it. I felt it down to my soul. <laughs> what What was interesting to me about my story is the order in which I did things early on. I started with the poetry, right. Because I had nothing else. Right. If the books on decoding had come first, I would have trusted those books. And I recognised, you know, much later, if the decoding had come first, I would have limited our learning to decoding. Well, and I did that for a long time and it was awful. It was awful. And so doing the poetry, because it was the poetry that was more powerful. Right. It was the poetry that allowed his mind to go poof. Yeah. And yeah. And, and then, the, the, yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is that there's so many options for how there isn't one right way to read or to learn to read or to learn to decode all of those words. And you have to keep being willing to try. And and I liked when you were using some of the things you used with your son and you were trying on other students and you would realize, oh, this isn't working the same as it did with my son. What can I do to change this up to make sure that it works for this student? And that's what we really have to get to in, in education, in my mind, is to recognize that you're not teaching first graders. You're teaching individual students with individual needs and they might need individual things in order to comprehend what you're trying to teach them. So what I've learned throughout my process is that, you know, teachers will get hooked up. I can't do everything individually for the child. However, it's not the individuality that, that was causing the problem. The problem is that to learn to read, every single person on this planet, 100% of people who learn to read, have to make the same jumps to be effective readers. Right. The jumps happen at such speed we don't see them happening. And what I did in my process, particularly for a child who's second percentile speech-language impaired, I have to get everything right. And that's what we don't do. Right. And then we don't analyze what has this child got? What haven't they got? What do I have to do? Right, right. Where is the actual deficit? Instead of just saying, can't read, will never learn to read. Can't read, decode. Right. Can't read, leave it to only decoding without recognizing the complications that language causes and right. understanding the language causes for our children who are struggling with literacy. Yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it, Lois. And I'm really excited. I really am excited to to hear that you're going to like co-author another book. I think that's fabulous because you do have something to say. And I really want you to 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 don't don't give up with the speaking idea. 
I will really. talk to you after the show because I need definitely, help. Definitely do, because I really think that that you just need to find the right people and maybe the right way of, of talking to the people to let yes. them know that this is what I have. This isn't a story about, you know, oh, a mom and a, and a boy. This is this is about changing lives. And I think that, yeah, that'll make a difference. But the, wonderful. The quote, the quote that's in my book that I absolutely love yeah. comes from Briggs Myers. Mm-hmm. And she says, and I won't get it right now, and she says that we teach in a way that is isolated, abstract, and irrelevant, and it flies into outer space, never to return. You know, I've forgotten the three words that she uses, but that was phenomenal quote for me. That right. Just, and when we change our teaching from isolated, abstract, and irrelevant to relevant, relatable, Isolated, abstract, and relevant. Relevant, isolated, concrete. Right. Abstract. Forgotten, haven't I? Yeah, you've got uh, it. But, but it, got it. it changes the outcomes for our children, and that's yeah. how we teach. Isolated, abstract, and relevant, and then we blame the kid instead of right. change. Instead of changing it around. Yes. And I loved it when you were doing, you were doing a play, uh, having kids act out that story, and they said, but we don't have this. We wouldn't have a captain that did that. And we wouldn't have this. And you were like, hmm, that's true because this was an Australian story. So what would you have? And then and then they said, well, this is what we would have. And you were like, great, that's what we'll do because that turned it into relevance for them. It was, it was not relevant to them because they had no idea what that meant. It didn't mean anything. And you thought, that's correct. It doesn't mean anything to you. So what would? And I love that, that you found ways of, of turning things around so that the, those that were struggling with reading, when they, when they accomplished it, it meant something to them. I'd forgotten that story. Yeah. I'm in touch with that boy. Are you? Twain, who still is functionally illiterate and, and through COVID obviously struggling. Right, right. It, Taught me the power of culturally appropriate literature. Exactly. Exactly. Because some things don't mean anything. So if it doesn't mean something to you, learning that word, being able to decode that word, it it doesn't it doesn't put a picture in your mind. You don't know what you're supposed to do with it. It's it's like it's like if someone were to drop German in the middle of your English sentence and expect you to know what to do with it. You know, it's like, I I actually read, my husband really loves nonfiction. And there is an author that he reads that often will throw in a phrase from another language and then doesn't explain it. And it drives me insane because it's like, this isn't, this isn't helping me. If you want me to know why you've used this Latin term or this German word or whatever, you need to explain it to me so that now I have context for it. Because otherwise, you keep using this same word over and over and I still don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's I, th- I think it would be the same thing. Mm. Right? And then you would close the book. I wouldn't exactly. go back to it. Oh, I don't even read it. It just makes me crazy. My what? husband, my husband will look those words up. Yes. And then he and and. I just don't have the patience for that. If you're not going to help me understand what it is that that you're writing, I don't have the patience. <laughs> that's that's the position my student was in. 
right. after he left me he tried to get reading instruction through the library and through other, and he never found a teacher who was willing to go as far as I did and that's where he was left behind yeah yeah you know and the quite what I wanted to do in that chapter I wanted to say I did say in my original version we met each other 10 years too late and my editor said you've got to explain that you got and I said I don't want to right right but she made me take it out but I thought that's the sentiment I want people to know this child could have been taught to read at the age of six but we failed him we failed him we exactly. sent him to school for 10 years to fail every single day can you imagine yes I can Yes, I know you can because you had your son that you were dealing with and your your yeah. own issues. I sit here as a as someone who did not struggle in school and I think how horrific yes. to go into school every, every single, single day, day and fail. And it's worse than that to me because it's not you you're presenting your failure. That's all you're seeing. And no one sees that mind that's got a PhD exactly. in applied mathematics behind it. Exactly. What they are capable of. That there's so much more. There's so much more to a child than what a test might show. Yes. You know. I love or, you. Or, or even <laughs> that the test is testing for the wrong things or in the wrong way. So that like your son had that amazing math ability, but because of the way the test was administered, it never showed. It wasn't that he didn't have it. It was that they weren't testing in a way that they could even see it. And then they weren't willing to look any further because the test right here, look at the test. The test shows that your son is stupid. Although my, my four-year-old granddaughter says we don't use the word stupid. It's not a nice word. We say weird. <laughs> she, she's four. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, so it's, it is, it's awful. I, 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 it's one of the reasons why I homeschooled was the idea of putting my children in with people that weren't going to be able to meet them where they were. Yeah. Both both my son who was very advanced and all three of my daughters who had specific issues that we were able to overcome at home. That, that, yeah. I, 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 my heart breaks for my grandchildren because yeah. we really only want this. You just want those middle kids, the yeah. ones that, that fall into that middle ground that yeah. learn the one way that you're teaching. My daughter-in-law, the wife of Nicholas, is yeah. a phenomenal lady, phenomenal. And and she's with my son, Nicholas. And she said to me, Nicholas is the most curious person I have ever met in my life. And she, you know, she's met a lot of, Nicholas is the most curious person. Right. And I thought, what a thing to say. That, that's an amazing thing to say. And I've got my quote. Let's see if I can. Isolated, abstract, and irrelevant, devoid of interest, flies into outer space, takes an inordinate amount of attention to be learned. Right. Cut and paste that. Fantastic. Fantastic. And if we change it to being relevant, related, and relevant, related, and forgotten the other word. Concrete, yeah. 
um, learning becomes, learning is easy, connections are made, and if it's interesting, surprising, or funny, no attention is required at all. I love that. I yeah. love that. Well, Lois, is there anything else that you wish that we had talked about that we didn't discuss? You, that, you. this has just been an amazing interview because we've got so many connections. I right. think you've covered it all. I believe, I know <laughs> you have covered it all because we're in that shared space of not fitting within normal. Right. I just, I'm... I just know I've, I've, I've watched people and, and I've dealt with so many people that don't fit in, in between those lines that we draw and they're amazing individuals and don't know it. So many of them don't know it. And it's like, Oh, Oh, what has happened to you along the way that you've lost the ability to know how amazing you are. Okay, so sure, you don't learn quite the same way, or sure, you don't you don't communicate quite the same way. But what difference does that make? Look at you, look at what you're doing. And so, I'm I'm much more likely to to look for like what is it that makes this person tick, and then go with that. Because if you can do that, like you did with your son, you found things that interested him, and then you used those and built on those to get him doing the things that the school wanted him to do. That's right? right. That's right. You know, you didn't start with, well, you have to do this first and then you can learn what you want to yeah. learn. You said, oh, this is what you want to learn. Well, then let's do that. And while we're doing that, we will get you doing what the school wants you to learn. It's like having a plate of food in front of you and you've got the food on the plate and you're looking at it and you've got no hands. Yeah. How do I do it? What am I supposed to do with that? Yes. And yeah. I gave him the knife and the fork and the spoon. And that's what yeah. the decoding does. It just yeah. gives you the tools right. to help. But there are other things involved. And I just love it. I, like I said, I absolutely love it. It's one of the things I tried to do with my kids was I would say, well, what do they enjoy? What What's making them excited about learning? And then we would learn many topics you know, my, my one daughter was really, really into Greek gods and goddesses. Yes. You know, that was like, she just loved them. Oh, we did all kinds of stuff about them. She was willing to write things. Yes. Yes. About Greek gods and goddesses. Yes. Couldn't have got her to write anything about, you know, what we did on vacation, but yes. I could get her to write about gods and goddesses because she was interested in that. And she was excited about the output that she made especially because I wasn't standing there with a red marker marking all over her, her stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I love, I love what you do. And I, mm -hmm. I love the fact that you make things, you know, relevant and fun and interesting and, you know, right along what they need in yeah. order to be, to be a good learner. So, yeah. well, Lois, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to meet. Terry. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on your show and thank you for sharing our passion. Wonderful. Thank our you. Our shared passion for changing the way our little children can grow up in the world. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.